This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Friday, December 8th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It's been a huge period for Israel. It's been a huge period for The Gist. Not such a great one for either. I know where the interests of uh, you, the listeners, are. Elections, Trump chicanery, the war in Ukraine, the war in Israel. But with the first three things, we were all on more or less the same page. Maybe my endorsement of a Klobuchar type, my critiques of a Kamala Harris type landed with, you know, a little bit of friction. But for the most part, yeah, we're, we're against Trump stealing the election. We didn't like Russia invading Ukraine. And when it comes to the war in Israel, well, there we diverge. Not all of us. I'd say not most of us. But on Israel, the things I say, and perhaps how I think, but I just, I actually think more of the things I say, are different from what the progressive consensus holds and believes. It's sincere. It's impassioned. Everyone's being sincere and everyone's being impassioned. But if I have to do an analysis, an analysis that is also informed by comments I get on Reddit and just looking at listenership and so forth, you know, there is a bit of a divide between some of the audience of the gist and me and my opinions and my expression of those opinions. Luckily, I have this institution called the Antwentig, and it will all be addressed in there. And if you're wondering, okay, fine, but specifically, does Mike have an opinion on the question of if Israel is an apartheid state? I mean, I do. You know, I do. I don't want to have to tell you it, but I guess I'm going to have to tell you it. And whew, there goes 43 more listeners. So given the massiveness, the enormity of what will be addressed in the Antwentig, we go right now to the interview where my guest, Isaac Saul, is a former writer for HuffPo, Time Magazine, Vox, and others. And in those jobs, he saw how editing decisions changed the tone of coverage. And that experience inspired him to create something that pretty ingeniously chronicles, quantifies, offers a taxonomy and a bit of a solution to the slant that one often finds in the news. It is called the Tangled Newsletter. It's clever, and Isaac Saul is up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
Isaac Saul is the founder of Tangle, which depending on how they position it, they will say it's a podcast and newsletter that's here to punch partisan media in the nose, or they might frame it in more conciliatory tones, an independent, ad-free, nonpartisan political newsletter that summarizes the best arguments from the left and the right on the news of the day. I found out about Tangle when I was doing a little bit of research on a Vivek Ramaswamy hit on Meet the Press, and Tangle was telling me things that I had thought about it in a way that was even better than the way I was thinking. So I always get interested in such outlets. And in the uh, couple of weeks since then, I've got really into the podcast and the newsletter and wanted to welcome Isaac Saul onto The Gist. Welcome to The Gist, Isaac. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Uh, Huge fan of the show and glad to be here. So tell me a little bit about yourself. You have a journalist background, HuffPo, is that right? <laughs> oh, God, come on. You're going to pull that out. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I am a politics reporter by trade. Uh, that's you know my, my background and did uh, close to a decade of political reporting for various outlets. The first place I ever had a job was the Huffington Post, as I like to say, not because I was a bleeding heart lib, but because I applied to 50 different places for a job and they were the only one that gave me one. Was, um, it, was it the Huffington Post or was it HuffPo? It was, uh, I actually, I think I experienced the transition. Maybe it had just become HuffPost. I was there 2013, 2014. Right. Um, So it was right around the time things were changing. But uh, yeah, that was, you know, uh, in some ways, a little bit of the Genesis story of Tangle because I got to see how the sausage was made and at a, at a, you know, a partisan leaning media outlet, I think obviously HuffPost. Yeah. So I do think the Huffington Post is, or HuffPost, so, so partisan leaning that I tell my wife who gets, or maybe got alert notifications like the Huffington Post tells you something, always check it with someone else. Like the New York Times, I'm not even saying the National Review. But I do think that uh, certainly when it started and even in 2014, the idea and the concept of what it meant to be a credible news organization was different than it is now. And I don't necessarily think it's worse. It veers further away from my definition. But would you agree with that? When you first started working for HuffPo or getting into the business, there was more of an emphasis on, look, not everyone reading this or experiencing this is going to be in ideological alignment. So you have to write to all manner of uh, potential readers or listeners. I would say my experience there was more like you can cover and report a story in a really balanced way, and we're going to encourage that. But we're going to package it in a way that gets the attention and targets a very specific kind of voter. So headline image, you know, maybe the lead of the story even is going to be something that, you know, evokes feelings and gets people to click and gets people to share. I mean, this was kind of the Facebook era when social media was driving most of the traffic to news organizations. And so what I saw was sort of like the sensationalism and the kind of more left-leaning bias get put into how the story was being presented rather than, you know, someone telling me I had to go find a more left-leaning source to quote in the beginning of the story. It was much more about how it was packaged and making sure we got you know, liberal readers to click and read the story. So it was sensational and idealist, uh, ideological, both those things. Yeah, I, in, yeah. In my experience, yes. And that's not to say, you know, I think Huffington Post has a lot of great reporters and does great reporting. And I'm proud of some of the work that I did there. But, you know, they, they were definitely telling a story, I think, that aligned with the ideological tilt of many of the editors who worked there. And that was, you know, designed to get shared by and be clicked by people left of center on, you know, the the American political spectrum at that time. Did that bother you? 
It did. I mean, like the, the, my Genesis story, I think is in part that, and then the, the initial, you know, happenstance of my life is that I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is a bellwether county and a bellwether Proto, state. Prototypical swing county. Yeah, yes. like when I was in high school, CNN was coming to my hometown to go in, interview people in the diners. Like th this is like the kind of county where that story was basically invented. You know, you figure out which way Bucks is going to go. You figure out which way Pennsylvania is going to go. And now you know who's going to win the election. That's like the kind of place it was. So I grew up with a lot of friends and family who were very varied in their political allegiances. You know, I have friends who are now, you know, very conservative cops or firefighters or whatever, who were like my buddies in high school. And I have friends who went on to get in like really academic spaces and are super lefties now. And we all went to high school together and some of them are my family. And so I was, you know, exposed, I think, to a, a really wide spectrum of political views and also felt very empathetic towards these people because they were my friends and family and understood how they came to their views and things like that. And so that was very, that informed me when I stepped into the media space and, you know, I, at least at Huffington Post, I didn't see a lot of those people right of center, you know, represented, I guess, in that space. Did you go to journalism school? I went to the University of Pittsburgh and I majored in nonfiction writing on the journalism track. They didn't have an official J school. But yeah, for all intents and purposes, I, I, I got a journalism degree. So was the emphasis there against objectivity, which is, I think, in the 10 years since has gained a lot of traction in journalism schools? What I'm trying to do is I understand how you grew up and you're probably it was probably incul inculcated in you that this was an ideal, some sort of fairness and knowing that you don't have uh, a monopoly on the truth going into a story. But what about your formal schooling? Did they did that push you away from that instinct and in how you grew up? Definitely not. I would say my former schooling was um, very divorced from the some of the perspectives about objectivity that we're seeing pop up in the media space today, predominantly from people on the left. It was really about representation and balance. And again, I was fortunate enough, I went to a school in Western Pennsylvania, another place with a ton of political diversity with professors, I think, who had a lot of political diversity. So, you know, I got really lucky that I wasn't being taught some of the things that, you know, at least I'm hearing about college students and J school students being taught now, which is that, you know, objectivity and, and balance are pursuits that are in a lot of ways worthless and maybe obscure the truth, which I certainly do not agree with. After Huffington Post, which or HuffPo, both, which were your first jobs, where else did you go and ply your trade? I I worked uh, at the, the next full time job I had was at a company called A Plus, which was actually founded by Ashton Kutcher, the actor, um, and he had this whole idea to do what we called basically solutions journalism, which was focusing on the people who were fixing things rather than the people who were breaking things. And I ran the politics division there. I had my own weekly column. Um, we had a, you know, a team. We built a newsroom of 30 people. I was one of the first full-time employees. And that dominated most of my career before starting Tangle. But in that time, I also, you know, I worked for Time Magazine. I wrote for them. I freelanced for Vox. I freelanced for Independent Journal Review, which is a conservative magazine. Um, I had some of my writing and, and work published in outlets like CNN and Fox News. So I I've been all over the place, um, you know, at, at least as far as being a freelancer goes. But that was really the job that led into the creation of Tangle. I was there for almost seven years 
and you know experience a different kind of brokenness in the media sector there that that led me to create tangle but so you cobbled together a very um i'm not going to say balanced but uh, a career where you were reporting for sources a bit across the ideological spectrum. And some of those sources, Washington Post, I'm thinking about, would probably have, um, would probably have, if you were a full-time staffer there, um, emphasized more of the ideal that you grew up with. There are maybe not, there's maybe more than one side to every issue, but not necessarily both sides in every issue. I'm trying to figure out if someone of your generation who turned out to do the things that you do, which is to do tangle and to be nonpartisan and to have a commitment for presenting the best arguments of both sides. Is there anything, was there anything institutionally guiding such a person as yourself towards that? I understand personally where you're coming from and how you developed your ideals. But the old story used to be, I started off working in a local newspaper. Now we know what local newspapers are decimated. And I was told early on, you can't put this in print because you haven't checked it, or this might be what you think, but now you got to go and find out what other people think. So anyway, what I'm saying is the institutions usual used to emphasize more of a balance. And now you tell me, did the institutions you work for emphasize that at all? Or did you just bring it to the institutions? So I would say two things. One is I had a little bit, I think, of that old school institutional upbringing because both my experience, you know, studying journalism at the University of Pittsburgh and also when I was there, one of the things I did for almost a full year was I shadowed reporters from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette as an internship. And that is an old school local newspaper that I think followed a lot of the more traditional journalistic ethics and standards. And I learned a ton from watching how those reporters work. So that's one. And then, you know, as far as the institutional experiences I've had, I would say Time Magazine was probably the one that to me was like the most challenging as a reporter because it was, I mean, literally every sentence I wrote, there was a question about it. How did you come to this conclusion? What's your source? You know, how can you justify us printing this? Yeah, on, on, you know, stuff that maybe wasn't even in my mind super consequential. So, you know, I, I'm sure that tons of people have gripes with different reporting that Time Magazine has done for different reasons. But I had an editor at A Plus who was a fantastic editor, and then she went to Time Magazine. And when I worked with her, both at A Plus and Time Magazine, I mean, she really pushed me to, you know, you know, when we were at A plus, it was like, we're a small outfit. If we screw this up, it's going to end this thing. And yeah. when she was at Time Magazine, it was like, this is Time Magazine. You can't print something here unless like you can really prove it. And um, that, that made me a better writer and a better journalist. And it made me dig deeper on everything I did. And I, I would say those were the two most positive institutional influences I've had. Um, maybe like the, the counter to that would be publishing work for a place like Vox, where I think I saw edits happen in my story after I published it that 
change the ideological tilt of it a little bit. I mean, again, still fact checking. Still, I don't make, want to be naive, but towards what direction? <laughs> towards, uh, I think the left of center direction. I think like I saw and experienced that there is like you know a certain kind of story they're interested in, a certain kind of quote they want included in the story. And I read Vox. I think it's a valuable news outlet to read. But I would never just read Vox. I would always supplement it with you know stories on the same topic from maybe a more right-leaning or centrist outlet. And, you know, it was a very, very different experience writing and publishing something for them than it was for a place like Time Magazine, in my experience. Yeah. Um, what right-leaning publications did you write for? I think you mentioned one. There was a there was this old, well, I don't I, I don't know how old it was. It's, it's called the Independent Journal Review. I think IJR.org is oh, their okay. website. I'm not sure if they're still around, actually. They, they were more definitely more conservative. Um, so were the places that you wrote for that are ideologically slanted to the left, and admittedly, maybe IGR is the only, IJR was the only one to the right, so we, we can't compare. Maybe it's just as, I'm, I'm going to use the word bad. But was it that they were less rigorous about their assertions just because they were less rigorous, or they were being less rigorous as long as the assertions were ideologically aligned with their worldview? It's a subtle thing. I would say it's not so much less rigor. It's almost more skepticism about the things that challenge their views and less skepticism about the things that don't. Like you're going to get pushed on certain sentences that are maybe more supportive of a conservative right-wing view and they're going to challenge you in ways they don't if you're saying something that they accept as being common knowledge. That was much more my experience along with I think some of the same stuff I saw at the Huffington Post which was just the way uh, you know the story was packaged, the headline, the image, the structure of it, what quotes we put up top. I mean, all of these choices get made in every newsletter or every newspaper that's out there. You know, you can go read, and this is an exercise I've done in my newsletter: is take the Wall Street Journal straight news team and the New York Times straight news team covering the exact same event, you know, a presidential address or the trucker protests in Canada, something like that, and put side by side how they cover those stories, who they quote first, what kinds of language they use, you know, what their lead is. And you will see drastically different stories. Despite yeah, the, the Canadian fact, trucker story is prominent on your site, or maybe I just thought it was yeah, so well done, but that's a great example. Yeah. And, and, and you can see that there are these language choices being made by, in my opinion, the best reporters in the world with the most resources. They're the best paid. They have the best staffs and editors and whatever. I mean, they're the premier publications, I think, print publications in the United States still, but their bias infects the piece clearly because they're writing two stories that are not like marginally different. They are drastically different when you look at them side by side. So is what you do at Tangle a direct outgrowth of exactly what we've been talking about? Yeah, I mean, my initial instinct was I would want to learn about something like Trump's border wall. And in order to feel like I was getting a holistic look at the arguments around why the border wall was good or bad, I would go read the Wall Street Journal editorial board. Then I'd read Huffington Post. Then I'd read National Review and Breitbart. And then I'd read the New York Times. And I'd go back and forth between these sources that were maybe more to the left or more to the right. I'd listen to a podcast or watch a YouTube video, spend six hours doing that. And then at the end, I'd be like, okay, I think I have a pretty good grasp of how both sides feel about this issue and the evidence they present to make their argument. 
And I was like, this has to exist in one place. And it didn't. Like I, I went looking for that product and I didn't see it anywhere. And so I came up with this really simple concept for a newsletter where I would do that research. And then I would just summarize all the arguments and quote the arguments that I found out there from the left and the right, put them all in one place under one roof. And my goal was both to expose people to political views that they were not seeing because everybody's in their own little social media bubbles or whatever. But it was also to build a news brand that people on the right and the left could both trust. Because the other thing I was seeing was that, you know, the New York Times now is read almost exclusively by very educated people with left of center politics. The only conservatives who read it are reading it to criticize it, to critique it, to, you know, blast it on Twitter or whatever. And the same is true of the Wall Street Journal or Fox News and the New York Post. There's a lot of ideological differences between the readerships there, which I think is a really dangerous thing. So, um, you know, I blasted this email out to 15 friends and family and asked them what they thought. The feedback was super positive. I went public with it. I started building, building the mailing list. And over time, I've become a lot more mission-oriented because I've heard from people that this has really made them more open-minded and more intelligent, and they've become more understanding of the other side or you know, their Trump uncle or their super hyper-liberal niece or whatever. It, it's having, a th I think, a positive impact of injecting some sanity and balance and nuance into our current political moment, which has very little of any of those things you know, by my estimation. Mm -hmm. What do you do with topics that don't lend themselves to the left-right to having great left-right salience. I don't know, I'm thinking of you covered RFK running as an independent. Would it necessarily the best way to think about that is what a conservative would say, what a liberal would say, or might you want a different way of looking at that than yeah, what the right we, says, what the left it's says? A, it's a very great, a very good question. It's a great question. We, we flex our format actually, depending on what the topic is. So sometimes we'll do something like on the one hand and on the other hand, and we'll just do, you know, two different sets of arguments that are in tension with each other. Sometimes, you know, we covered the initial Hamas attacks in Israel, that was a really controversial story, but people on the left feel really differently about that. You know, the progressive left and the traditional Democrat, I mean, just look at what's happening in the house right now. I mean, there's a ton of conflict there. So we actually covered that story by just sharing like pro-Palestine framing and arguments and pro-Israel framing and arguments and just putting them up against each other. Because, you know, as much as I think the left-right dichotomy is a good way to understand the current American political moment, I also don't want to reinforce that dichotomy when it's not necessary. I mean, there there are times where I think it's good for us to get out of that kind of red versus blue framework. There is a critique of journalism, and it is at times an apt critique about both sides or both siderism. And yeah, there are a lot of issues where you don't want to get the other side or give too much credence to anything from, you know, eugenics to there's no climate change and man has and carbon has nothing to do with it. So what do you do to guard against falling into both sidesism? Yeah, it, it's a one of the bigger challenges we get, and I think probably one of the most common critiques we get is from people who accuse us of both sidesing. And that is Isaac Saul, creator of the Tangled newsletter. And if you are enjoying our conversation, as listeners of The Gist, I think you might be, because in many ways, the tenets of Isaac Saul's project mirror those of this said gist. If you want to hear more of the interview, 
Then I ask you to become a Pesca Plus subscriber. Each week we give you an extended cut of an interesting conversation. We have also done a trivia night. There's a lot more on offer. You don't have to sit through ads if that's your bent. Subscribers help us do independent journalism, which, you know, has a lot of pressures from side to side and sometimes a bit of audience capture, which maybe I am going so far against. It is to my detriment. If you like what we're doing here, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. The spiel on Antoine Tig is up next. Hi, it's an Antan twig, our name for a three-week period, which I frequently ignore and becomes a four- or five-week period. Lots of discussions on the international event that's been dominating our news, the Venezuela incursion into the Escobedo River of... No, it's Israel. On October 19th, Emily wrote in to me, I was wondering if you're planning to talk about the claim that Israel is an apartheid state. I wrote to Emily, I don't think so, except maybe in passing. But if you're interested, this was a great episode. I linked to a copy of the uh, Comedy Cellar interview with Benny Morris. But then yesterday, I did talk about Israel becoming an apartheid state. Actually, it was in passing. The New York Times did an article about the family. The daughter, Louisa Kornblatt, is now very critical of Israel, and she uses phrases like apartheid state. She uses this description to her sister-in-law, a black woman who is married to Louisa's brother, a white man. And the Ethiopian sister-in-law rejects the description, her exact phrase, it's not black and white. I actually thought this was a delightful bit of reporting, as was the description of the 31-year-old Louisa, who the article says sometimes uses they-them pronouns, and began her journey of viewing Israel in a more anti-colonialist frame when, quote, she started attending a graduate program in social work at UC Berkeley in 2017. My insight was mostly into the imagined Venn diagram of the UC Berkeley social work graduate student who uses they-them pronouns pronouns, and the vocal Zionist. I would think it's not terribly huge. Deference to lived experience of the black woman married to the white man in saying, no, it's not apartheid. That happened not to be the tactic she might have learned in graduate school. You hear where I'm coming from? Am I being dismissive and reductive? I am. Some on the Reddit page didn't like that. Overtired millennial writes, Mike was incredibly disingenuous in the last episode, which was literally the last episode that post showed up 16 hours ago. In the last episode, Mike suggested Israel was not an apartheid state because of the opinion of a black Israeli woman. However, as Mike surely knows, the argument for calling Israel an apartheid state isn't based on how Israel treats its black citizens. It's based on how the Israeli state treats its Palestinian slash Arabs in Israel and in areas under Israel's control. Yes, 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 yes. Mike here. I understand. I thought almost all the listeners would too, but I shall spell it out now. Apartheid is a Dutch, actually Afrikaans, word used to describe the system of oppression in South Africa, where the law spelled out which races could live where, which races could have what job, what education, who you could marry, just about everything else. The comments to the overly disingenuous in the last episode comment diverged. You know, some supported, some didn't. But there was a chorus agreeing that I was disingenuous. And they said things like, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and the UN Human Rights Commission refers to it, meaning Israel, as apartheid. 
Well, the one organization in that trio that has some credibility on this issue, Amnesty International, did a 280-page report equating the Israeli regime to apartheid. I did read that report, not the only time I encountered the idea that Israel was an apartheid state, and always this critique defines aspects of the Israeli treatment of Palestinians as being, and this is absolutely true, way worse than Jewish Israelis are treated. Of course it's worse. Of course it's true that they are separated, that the lives and laws of the Jews in the West Bank are better comparatively than the Palestinians in the West Bank, to say nothing of Gaza. Jewish settlers have been allowed too much leeway to expand there. The Netanyahu government unnecessarily pursued judicial overhaul, which made matters worse. All true, but that doesn't mean that apartheid is the best or even a close to accurate phrase. Apartheid is only used to shock the consciousness of Westerners. There are so many parts of apartheid that don't apply to Israel. Intermarrying, opportunities for employment. This is huge. Representation in the Knesset. Two million Palestinian Arabs have voting rights. Eight million Israelis have voting rights. Now, there are five million Palestinians who live in Gaza and the West Bank who aren't allowed to vote for seats in parliament. That's bad. But again, they can't even vote in local elections because their ruling parties took over and destroyed the democratic process there. So the only way for an Arab anywhere in Israel to vote depends on not living in a place governed by Hamas or Fatah, because they will take away your rights. This is widely different from the most basic and important aspects of the apartheid we know and the apartheid that give the phrase meaning. It makes so little sense to use the phrase apartheid except as a provocation, call it a system of inequalities, call it a system of stark inequalities, call it discrimination. Oh, that is true. That is absolutely true. Call it oppression. That might be subjective, but I think it's accurate often. It's not just me saying this. The Amnesty International report says, quote, this report does not seek to argue that any system of oppression and domination as perpetrated in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories is the same or analogous to the system of segregation, oppression, and domination as perpetrated in South Africa. So even the report says, well, it's not entirely apt. But that brings up another point, an interesting point. And a Redditor named George Alice writes, As a computational linguist, the definition of words change over time, especially in English. It can be frustrating, but languages are living, evolving things. And if people use a word in a new way, that word comes to mean a new thing. Okay, well, you're right about that. And by right, I mean wrong, which, since I'm using it in a new way, makes me wrong, which is to say I'm right. George Alice goes on to say, peruse no longer means to study carefully, and apartheid no longer only means racial segregation, and then links to a dictionary definition of apartheid, which reads in its entirely apartheid, racial segregation. Specifically, a former policy of segregation and political, social, and economic discrimination against the non-white majority in the Republic of South Africa. And it also mentions as other definitions, cultural apartheid and gender apartheid. George Alice has posted and read it before. I think George Alice is pretty kind and supportive. I find some of these people on Reddit, they're just trying to provoke, but I like George Alice. I do have to say to George Alice, while language evolves 
as do finches and frogs, it doesn't mean that every finch you hold in your hand was once a slightly different species of finch last week it, or next week, right? If you're holding a, I don't know, common cactus finch, you can't reliably predict that a gray warbler finch will be its grandchild. Definitions change, but they also quite often don't, even if some people want them to. Here's another way to think about it. Definitions do change, but there are legitimate discussions of if a term is apt. To propose the application of a new term is not to automatically impose the new term. Otherwise, once Russia, otherwise, once Russia said, yes, these parts that we used to call Eastern Ukraine, we shall now call them Russia, new term, we win. What George Alice is saying is that the answer of should Israel be considered an apartheid state can be answered by acknowledging that terms change and that the old way of thinking of apartheid state was the South African style racial apartheid state. But the new definition of apartheid state is the ethnic Arab, Palestinian and Jew ethnic state that Israel does. Old definition, South Africa-like, new definition, Israel-like. So is Israel an apartheid state? Yes, given that the new definition is Israel-specific. And by the way, if there were no evoking of South Africa, I wouldn't object. If it just means apartness, yes, the two, the two populations certainly live apart and differently, and one lives worse. So the words change, but they still, of course, contain their old connotations, and the hideous connotation of the word apartheid is the main reason that Israel critics reach for it, lexicon as cudgel. Now, maybe you thought, when you heard that whole thing just now, I am deeply uninterested. (laughs) I bet, also, if you think apartheid's just the right word for Israel, you're saying he's playing word games. He's not being honest. Maybe the word disingenuous comes to mind. What I'm trying to do, actually, is lay out what I think is a flaw in the direction of thinking. And you don't have to agree with me. I just hope laying out ideas like this might spark an insight or even a righteous disagreement. As a listener, I sort of like that. But I have been reading people on Reddit, and I've been looking at who's listening, and a lot of people are saying, I just can't listen to Mike on Israel anymore. The charges are something like he's in the bag, He's a Zionist. He's not objective. He got bought off by a free trip. The answers to those charges are, no, I'm not. Yes, I am. No one is, but I am fair and please. I took a trip to Israel. I learned so much on that trip. What one learns from interviewing generals, heads of agencies, activists, hostage families, victims, many of whom disagreed with each other, by the way. Got to ask them all questions, sometimes hard questions. But I do take the point in terms of volume in terms of the sheer tonnage of Israel content. If that's not what you want, I am giving you a lot of this. And I've always conducted the gist based on where my interests take me, trusting the audience will follow. But I also know, well, sometimes they won't. I do far less sports coverage on the gist than I'm interested in real life. Almost no gambling. But in this case with Israel, I can understand that many people just very much disagree with me and many other people say it's just too much. It's just not what I want to be hearing over and over again. And those two parts, I disagree and it's over and over again, I do think that they flow together. Yes, we all say I'm open to opinions different from mine, 
but how different? And how often do you want to hear them? I think there's a sweet spot for everyone on what the ideal percentage of programming is that you disagree with and what is the maximum percentage you'll put up with. I think the ideal is somewhere between 10 and 20%. It's a little fun, a little spicy to hear Stephen A. Smith say some sort of crazy thing. I think the max, probably 50% for most people. People will listen to or watch a TV show or read a journal they disagree with, but not one they mostly disagree with. Some will, I sometimes do. I'm rare. But basically, our time is limited and it's a waste of time. It gets infuriating. I do get that. So what I try to do is to add something. And that something isn't defining if Israel's an apartheid state. I usually, on something like that, say there's no answer. But there are so many topics over the years. We're going to go non-Israel now. We're focused on a phrase or an assertion that gains prominence or dominance. And I dissect a couple examples that come to mind with different political valences. Black women are the backbone of the Democratic Party. Kept getting said again and again after a couple midterms ago. And I dissected that. I dug deeply. What did it mean? A lot of my old colleagues didn't like that I did that. Another one is members of the Bush administration used to always say, History will judge us. History, well, what does that mean? Who's history? Who defines history? I talked about that concept a lot. A lot of my liberal listeners, who I kind of think are most of my listeners, that's okay, I'm mostly liberal too. They like that one because it was the Bush administration that was being disingenuous and I, I think provided some thinking to put your figure on, oh, that's exactly how they're doing it. By the way, I've said this before, disingenuous means purposefully misleading. I've never done that. There is another phrase, I guess, to examine. My beliefs are sincere. I'm not trying to convince you of anything with trickery or saying things I know, I know to be false or by hiding relevant counter-information. I hate when that happens. But as I was saying, one of the values of the gist has been to assess claims. In this war, we have, I don't know, apartheid, colonialism, settlers, white settlers, indigenous collective punishment, outdoor prison, most crowded places on earth, non-civilian atrocity, war crime, proportionality. I haven't talked about all, but they all interest me. Not the semantics and picking apart words, but the meaning, the truth, the accuracy of what happened. I mean, let's just take one. You keep hearing that Israel's an open air prison. Then we get a New York Times feature titled, We'll Never Get Out of Hell, One American Family's Escape from Gaza. Here's a quote. Julia spent time in the family's compound in Ramal, an upscale neighborhood in northern Gaza. She rode horses on the beach and hung out with her cousins and friends she had not seen in years. I don't know if I kept hearing open air prison on the same pages with that description, I would appreciate, at least appreciate the person who brought it to my attention as discordant. But also maybe I, I would say like, okay, what about the claims that you always hear that are supportive of Israel? Why don't you dissect those? I want to. Tell me what you think those are. Email me at thegist at mikepesca.com. And we already have a lot of your suggestions on pro-Palestinian experts. Our requests are out. Hopefully we'll get more yeses than the one for, well, the Nathan Thrall for 15 in the first round. All I could do is engage with the ideas I hear. I've been listening, reading, watching so much about Israel. And then I could take these ideas and explore them on the show uh, ideally with interviews, sometimes with self-generated segments in fair, honest ways. Lots of people say they have stopped listening because they don't think that that, me being fair and honest, is what's going on right now. I get it. I have a listener base that's mostly Democrats, and most news outlets with that audience don't do as much Israel coverage as I do. It's polarizing. 
But I think it's useful, and if I were a listener, even one who disagrees with so much of what I said, I think I would get something out of it. And now finally, the lobstar of the Antoine Tig. Sometimes on Reddit, a fight breaks out. And the first couple posts are critical. I get it. It doesn't mean critical posts are unfair. It happens. But then countervailing opinions chime in and a conversation is had. I do have to say, when I read a critical post, I say, oh God, I hope someone gets what I was saying. And almost always they do. And when that happens, when there's discussion and counter discussion, sure, sometimes it goes off in like rivulets of uh, anger. But a lot of times excellent substance is injected and real conversations are had. That's what I want to see. So I wanted to pick out one of the people on Reddit who adds substance and who seems to understand my points well. It doesn't mean that, oh, he agrees with me, but... I will just say, here's how I'll articulate why I'm giving this fellow the lobster. If I met this guy in a bar and he said, oh, I'm, and then said his Reddit name, I would say to him, I have to thank you. You articulated what I was trying to say and just said what I did say, and you put forward relevant information and you elevated that discussion. Also, this guy occasionally generates transcripts so we don't have to debate about what was said. You could just read what was said. That's almost always more effective than our recollections about what was said. So I won't buy him a beer, but I am John Miller. No, I'm not, but I'm saying that I am John Miller. You are not only John Miller. You am the lobster of the Antwentig. And that's it for the show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson is the executive producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeepuru, Dupuru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>